Chapter 1 Took the Children Away This story is right, this story is true. I would not tell lies to you. That promises they did not keep. And how they fenced us in like sheep. They said to us, Come take a hand. And set us up on. Mission landing Told us to read To write and pray Then they took The children away Took the children away Children away Slapped from their mother's breast this is for the best Took them away Melbourne, 1961-1970 A face came close Just as small as mine Just as black This wasn't my first memory But it was the first one that was vivid and happy He was looking me up and down. I was in a place that seemed like a palace, all floors and walls of shiny white stone and a big grand staircase that led up to walls groaning with framed pictures of men in suits and gowns. Now I know it was a courthouse, but then I saw it as a good place to run around, so I did just that, weaving through a thicket of coppers and lawyers until, in a clearing, I found a small black face like mine. I wasn't sure I'd seen anyone who looked like me before. He was the same size and seemed the same age too. I ran my eyes up and down him to make sure he was real. I think he was doing much the same. A couple of six-year-old black boys, wary and happy in equal measure, I'm sliding, he said to me with authority. That's real good, I said. Seemed like a grand thing to do, but with all this shiny stone around. You try sliding up here, he said. Take me over to a big fancy banister. It's good sliding here. This little fella climbed up the stairway and rocketed down, landing on the floor with a slight buckle at the knees. We both ran up the stairs and slid down, one after the other. Up and down we went, until after one go, I landed at the feet of a proper woman, all done up with silver hair, brown stockings and a pressed frock. She had a clutch of papers in her hands and leant down to me with a smile. Archie, I see you've already met Noel. I didn't say anything. That's good, because you're coming with us. Come on, she said, motioning to the sliding boy who looked like me. They started towards the exit together and into daylight. Come on, Archie, the woman said, looking back. Noel motioned too. I followed. 
I was used to going along with different people. The woman's name was Dulcie Cox. Soon she would be known to me as Mum. Mum Dulcie, Noel and I called a taxi and rode through the working class fringe of northwest Melbourne until we pulled up at a gate framed with well-kept vines. I stepped out of the car and found, waiting for me, a small house and a stocky, balding man with a big smile and an accent as thick as weak old custard. Hey, he's a proper wee lad, he said. To my ears this sounded like gibberish, but I took consolation in the fact that this seemed to be cheerful gibberish. He's a bonny wee lad, the man said as he came at me for an embrace. Mum Dulcie must have seen fear in me, or at least confusion. So she translated. He says you're a good young fellow, Archie. The man was Dulcie's husband, Alex, soon to be known to me as Dad. A storeman for an aviation company on the last stretch of his working life. Dad Alex was a proud Scot from Glasgow and someone I will always think fondly of to the day I die. Alex and Dulcie Cox were in their late 50s when they took me in, but were energetic for their age. Dad Alex would wait with the son to run the streets of northwest Melbourne every morning, and Mum Dulcie never seemed to find the responsibilities of keeping a respectable Protestant home a labour. Their motivation to take me in seemed a surplus of love, even after sharing it liberally. Having raised their sons, John and David, who were now grown and worked down the road as used car salesmen, and their daughters Jeannie, who had married and left home, and Mary, a teenager who lived with us. Mum and Dad Cox had chosen me the way they had chosen Noel and his older blood brother, Les, after seeing us in a government advertisement in a Melbourne newspaper. The ad asked for good Christians to open their hearts and homes to desolate Aboriginal children whose faces peeked out of the page wearing their Sunday best and the broadest smiles they could muster. Of course I knew nothing about this at the time, nor the fact that they chose me so I could be a companion to Noel, who was about to lose Les to a trade in early adulthood. I started life at the Cox House quiet and wary, but soon I was just quiet. I quickly came to understand Dad Alex's brogue, and in his words I found humour and heart. He had no stomach for sharp words against children, so discipline was left to Mum Dulcie, but she wasn't much of an authoritarian either. There was an organ in the front room which Mary played beautifully, extracting music of praise from the instrument with an impressive juggling act of key tinkling, valve pulling and pedal pressing. Mary also played the organ at the church we attended every Sunday, and I was always impressed and proud when I saw her up there at the front. After I learnt the words to the songs, I'd fidget in my seat waiting for the opportunity to sing along to Onward Christian Soldiers or the Old Rugged Cross. Shortly after moving in with the Coxes, I started going to Strathmore North Primary, a school attended mostly by New Australians the sons and daughters of Italian and Greek migrants who would speak their native language at home to grandmothers who would never learn English. 
I liked school, but like any young boy, I enjoyed weekends and holidays even more. Sometimes Jenny would invite Noel and me to stay with her and her husband in the then pastoral suburb of Keelor. There we would learn to ride horses, something Noel especially loved. Other times we'd all pile into David's or John's car and drive over to Mount Evelyn, now engulfed by urban sprawl, but back then consisted of miles of bush, interrupted by a few shacks with no power. Dad Alex owned one of those shacks, nestled among gum trees. There was a fish-filled creek nearby that I'd throw a line into. I loved that Mount Evelyn place, but sometimes in the quiet night, I would have waking dreams of another rural home, where I now know I was previously fostered. In a twilight of consciousness, I would be back there, telling a large woman that I loved potatoes so much I could eat them raw, then getting nothing else but that to eat. I would be in a grain shed under a sack that worked as a blanket. I would be cold and hungry, staring at a locked barn door. I would hear a key turn in a lock. I would feel fear and then pain. There were more reasons than love to take in a kid you'd seen in the newspaper. After dinner, Mum and Dad Cox would reveal more of themselves than they would during the day. Mum Dulcie would take off her cat-eye glasses and let her hair down, which she usually kept bound up on top of her head. A cascade of beautiful silver would rush down her back and seeing that used to take my breath away. Dad Alex would unwind after the pop of a beer bottle top and perch himself on a chair next to the organ or the record player and sing with full throat the songs of his youth. Alongside him, I'd learn all the lyrics of modern Scottish ballads like Drifting Down the Salamar and raucous ditties like Donald wears your trousers. I took great joy in sharing those songs with Dad Alex because I wanted to be close to him and I also wanted to understand the power that the songs had over him. For most of the day, Dad Alex was a man of star-shirted resolve but as the music played, another man emerged with tears in his eyes and a heart fit to burst. Dad Alex used to take me and Noel to the Highland Games and there we would both be, wide-eyed at the things those huge men in kilts would do, like throwing the cabre and hammer. He would explain to us the significance of their tartan and speak strange, guttural words of a language that has all but died. He explained once that he said being a tribal people and as pipes and drums filled our chests, I thought I didn't know just what he was talking about. I felt it. I was a happy child. Mum and Dad Cox never treated me or Noel or Les any differently to their biological children. And at school there was a healthy assortment of differences in the classroom. Some kids were tall. Some kids were Greek. Some kids had red hair. Others brown. One kid walked funny. A few were really smart. One had very dark skin. None of that meant much once we started playing games at recess and lunch, like British Bulldog and Marbles. I don't remember seeing myself as any different to the other kids until, 
One day, I took a friend named Chris home to meet my parents. All had gone well, but as we walked back to Chris's place, I could tell that he wanted to talk to me about something. Something he had difficulty speaking about. Finally, I stopped and confronted him. Chris, is there something you want to ask? Archie, I was just wanting to... Wondering why... Why are your parents white? I didn't really understand the question. It's just because you're black, he added quietly. Chris had me stumped. There was a spectrum of skin colours at our school, from northern European pinks to deep Mediterranean olives, and I knew I was a bit darker than them, but I'd never thought much about the fact that all of the parents did largely have the same colouring as their children. I had no answer for him. I went home in a minor state of confusion, and when I walked into the house, I was happy to find Dad Alex sitting in his chair. Dad, am I black? He bolted upright, his face turning red with Glaswegian fury. Who told you that, son? A mate from school. The wee lads that were just here? No, no, another kid. Although that Alex was probably all of 60 kilos dripping wet, he could get up a full head of steam if he wanted to, and I was scared for Chris. Who said it? I want to have a chat to him. No, no, please, Dad. He's all right. He was just asking. I wished I'd never said anything. Dad Alex calmed down a bit and readied for a speech. I think he'd been preparing for some time. Archie. You're nae black, but you are is Aboriginal. You and your people are the first people on this land. He put his hand on my shoulder. Everybody else here are blown away pommies. You remember that? I did remember that, but I didn't understand what that meant for a long time. The way Dad Alex spoke, with heavy eyes and pursed lips, frightened me, though. My skin felt a bit different after that, and sometimes I would look at my hands as though they were someone else's. I thought maybe Noel knew what it all meant. Has anybody ever called you black? I asked Noel, who I found playing in the backyard. He got very quiet and still. When he didn't say anything, I asked him again. Somebody did, but I chased him up the road. Why would you do that, Noly? I didn't like the way the kid said it. That night in bed, I tried hard to remember if I had met any other black people. And then the faces of two girls, a bit bigger than me, appeared. I remembered sharing food with them, and I remembered them hugging me. I remember one of them standing like a pugilist, her fists ready to strike like a couple of brown snakes. More memories came. Painful memories. This girl was protecting me. I didn't know where or when this was, but I was sure it was a memory and not my imagination. The girls were real. They were special to me, I knew that. They made me feel good. 
They were black and they didn't seem like anything to fear. I was very confused. I went into the lounge room where Mum and Dad Cox were, listening to the radio. I asked if they knew anything about these girls, but they said they didn't. I could tell they were uncomfortable in the telling. I knew I'd had a life before Mum and Dad Cox, and I wanted to ask if these girls were my sisters but felt ungrateful and ashamed. After all, Mum and Dad Cox had already given me two sisters, and good sisters at that. Jeannie lavished us with care whenever we visited her country home, and Mary brought music into the house. One time Mary, Dad Alex and I went to the Essendon Town Hall, where she wanted to hear a man from Detroit, Michigan, talk about a new type of organ created by an American engineer named Lawrence Hammond. His instrument was designed as an alternative to bulky church organs, but had also become a favourite of keyboard players signed to Detroit's rock and rhythm and blues labels. When the American man in the town hall started playing this new type of organ, my soul soared like theirs had. I couldn't believe my luck when Dad Alex announced that he'd filed an order for one of these magic-sounding organs. Having the sound of that organ fill our front room was like being able to see extra colours. It seemed Dad Alex saw those colours too. As he sang around the new organ, I could hear in his voice a yearning for his bonny childhood home, and a history that seemed dissolved into almost nothingness here on the fringes of Melbourne. I could feel his longing in my bones too, and for years I thought I missed Scotland, a country I'd never been to. It didn't occur to me that the black faces of my memory and the pit of melancholy in my belly were related. I was desperate to learn how to play this music myself, and one day Dad Alex brought home a very small organ with numbers on the keys. Mary was tireless, as she taught me, and even when I could barely keep time or get my fingers on the right keys, Dad Alex was always there to offer his forceful refrain of encouragement. For most of my primary school years, I lived the life that was presented to me. I was the son of Alex and Dulcie Cox. I was a student at Strathmore North. I was a fan of Fast Domino and Elvis Presley. I prayed to the versions of God and Jesus Christ that our Protestant minister spoke about each Sunday. I often felt an ache in my heart that I didn't understand, and I was confused by the colour of my skin. But by and large, I was happy. We all were. Then, after a short illness, 21-year-old Ginny Cox died. Our house suddenly became quiet. Noel, too, seemed to be affected deeply, and not only with grief. By the time Ginny passed, Noel knew about his other name and the siblings he previously had known nothing about. He told me once he had asked Les about his other family, but Les had told him that the Coxes were all the family he would ever need. Les never reverted to the surname of his birth parents, nor did he ever move far from the neighbourhood that he was dropped into. The life he carved for himself in Melbourne was enough for Les, and I never thought less of him because of it. Noel didn't like it, though. 
he was struggling with his own identity and started to hang out with kids who were drinking and smoking. I remember when he came home late one night, three sheets to the wind. As I let him in, I pleaded with Noel to be quiet so our parents could sleep. That enraged him. He swayed around with bald fists and I thought he was going to punch me. I eventually got him to take some food and water before getting him into bed. But as he slept, I lay awake because I suspected he was going to stay angry with me. I was right. We had been best friends, brothers. But now, for some reason, he saw me as an adversary. He often wanted to fight me, often after drinking. He was still a child, but he had a man's rage. When I started at Strathmore High School, I saw more rage. With Noel at a technical college, I was the only black boy in a school full of teenagers, and that's where the abos and gollywogs and black bastards started. Many of the kids throughout all of primary school who had known me only as Archie Cox now knew me as that black bastard. Was it the new environment? Hormones? Was it what they were hearing from their parents? Had the times changed? I didn't understand why. I still don't. In the beginning, I'd never stand up for myself and would laugh everything off, sometimes even denigrating myself for the sake of an easy life. Maybe that made things worse. Maybe it wouldn't have made any difference. When Dad Alex retired, he didn't take to his newly listless life well and had what they called in the 60s a nervous breakdown. As he suffered mentally, Mum Dulcie began to suffer physically with diabetes. Money got tight and we sold our home, shifting into the bush shack in Mount Evelyn that used to be our holiday place. While in Mount Evelyn, Mum and Dad Cox's health declined even further. We were there for a year before moving to nearby Muralbark. Although there were limits to the social standing of a black bastard in high school, I had great friends at my new school, Lilydale High, friends I really cared about. There was a Dutch kid named Hank, an independent soul who refused to compete at anything and spoke with a creamy accent, a girl with cerebral palsy who had calipers on her legs, and another slight, very smart boy who we called the brain. It was only with these friends that I would stand up for myself. I couldn't bear seeing these good kids disappear into themselves after a barrage of insults and cackles. I didn't care what people had to say to me, but if you picked on my friends, I would fight. I was small but wiry and athletic, and I had will. I guess I was a bit like Dad Alex in that way. I remember one instance when an older kid cornered Hank, telling him that he was going to beat him black and blue. Then he looked me up and down and said, You may be just blue. You can laugh. I did. You have to laugh. 
I fought that kid, but don't remember the outcome. I ended up fighting a bit at school, though I would always mind my own business any time I could. I wasn't there to fight. I was there to do sports and English and art. In art, I saw a vocation. I wanted to be the man who designed and painted the advertisements that you would see on the side of buildings. That job, part artist, part designer and part sign writer, doesn't really exist anymore. But in it, I saw a way to a happy, normal life. Mum and Dad Cox used to get on me about university, but each year they were less insistent about it. That wasn't just true about university. It was true about pretty much everything. It seemed in high school that for every year I aged, they aged five. With our family now in Mount Evelyn and only infrequently attending our Protestant church, I started going to a huge Pentecostal ministry with some friends from school, an early precursor to the modern mega churches like Hillsong. The ministry had little organised structure and instead was dedicated to letting the Spirit of God flow through the parishioners. We would sing modern soul for music and speak in tongues, a practice that was often maligned by other churchgoers and distrusted by Mum and Dad Cox. But I definitely got something out of it. When I let go and started babbling what I thought was the Word of God, my mind flowed without conscious effort, and long latent memories would emerge all the way back to a time before my foster family, before any foster family. I go back to a place where there was bush and black brothers and sisters and black uncles and aunties and a black mother and father. When I spoke in tongues, I felt a spirit in me. It was also in that church that I first heard the music of Hank Williams. One Sunday, a woman got up with a guitar and played a song that took my breath away. There was little complexity to the chord progression, but the tune which was crushingly sad but also uplifting and beautiful, spoke completely to me about a feeling that I thought was mine and mine alone. I'm a shy man and was even a shyer boy, but I had to approach this woman and ask about the song. She told me that the lyrics were a Bible verse and the tune was a Hank Williams song called Your Cheating Heart. When I got home, I asked Dad Alex about Hank Williams and was overjoyed to find that not only did he know Williams, but he had some of his records. Eventually, Dad Alex bought me my first guitar and I'd spend hours and hours sitting in front of the record player trying to play along. Even though Mary liked different music, she would always help me find the chords that I needed. I'd play sad country songs in the blues for Dad Alex, and I'd watch him momentarily be resurrected as the energetic father figure I'd known him to be. He was a lovely old bloke, Dad Alex. Good heart, good soul. Like many traditional Christians, he was wary of the Pentecostals at that time, but I think he figured if they were playing Hank Williams at church, they couldn't be all bad. Mum Dulcie was a tougher nut to crack. 
She didn't talk to me about my Pentecostal church, but I could tell she didn't like me going. I was getting a lot from that church and didn't want to stop attending. But I loved her and tried to reach her however I could. One way I tried was to help in the garden, cutting grass with a scythe when it got long and weeding under her direction. One day Mum Dulcie decided that we needed to get an enormous stump out of the garden and she was going to spurge on getting some men around to dig it out until I convinced her that I could do it. The days became weeks as I attacked the stump with a crowbar and shovel. It was hot, strenuous work, but work I enjoyed. As I'd hack and dig, I'd often see Mum Dulcie staring out the window at me with a look I could never quite figure out. One afternoon she called me in. I was all sweaty and stinky and had me sit at a table. On the table was a bone china tea set with a pot filled with hot brewed tea along with a plate laid with scones and sandwiches. A little ritual started between us, one we'd keep up for years. The talk at tea was usually very small, except for one instance that haunts me still. Mum Dulcie had tried to talk to me about school and the weather, when her shoulders started shaking and the features of her face bunched up, tears running down her cheeks. The old woman was crying about Noel. I knew that straight away. Her concern about me and the church was small potatoes compared to her worries about Noel. He had distanced himself from life with the Cox family altogether. He still lived with us, but he had become withdrawn. Mum, Dulcie and Noel had loved each other when we were younger, and I reckon they still did but they just couldn't understand each other anymore. She was losing another child. I sat there and felt deeply for her, but couldn't say anything, and couldn't move because I was scared she'd be able to tell that what was haunting Noel had started haunting me. When Mum Dulcie composed herself, she told me how worried she was about Noel. I told her I was worried about Noel too. I put my arms around her and consoled her as best I could without showing the restless heart that beat in my chest. Mum Dulcie feared Noel was now a stranger headed for alcoholism in the streets an ignominious fate for the son of a respectable Protestant woman. She never could have guessed that one day a letter would send me down that path too.